Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Long Final, Ireland's aviation podcast from Squawk 7000. The Irish Coast Guard is Ireland's fourth blue light service. It provides nationwide maritime emergency services to shipping and other government agencies. The Irish Coast Guard has responsibility for our national marine communication system, surveillance and emergency management in Ireland's exclusive economic zone, and certain inland waterways. It's responsible for the response to and coordination of maritime accidents, which require search and rescue and counter-pollution and ship casualty operations. It's also got responsibility for vessel traffic monitoring. In 1809, WaterGuard was formed, also known as the Preventative Boat Service. In 1822, the Coast Guard first was established by the Board of Customs and today operate many services, including the Coast Guard helicopters. Within each Coast Guard division, there are many search and rescue resources, including the Coast Guard Volunteer Coastal Units, capable of search, cliff and coastal rescue. Lifeboats provided by the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the RNLI, and Community Rescue Boats Ireland, and search and rescue helicopters under contract from CHC Helicopters with bases in Dublin, Waterford, Shannon and Sligo. In this episode, we talk with some of the crews from CHC about their work on behalf of the Irish Coast Guard. They have over 70 years of experience in search and rescue between them as they join us online from their various bases. Rob Tatton is General Operations and Accountable Manager for CHC Helicopters Ireland. CHC Ireland, we're an Irish company and what we have is we have global reach and support from different regions around the world and that's great for when you know when we need the backup and we need support. We have search and rescue in Norway, we've just won a contract there where we have extra aircraft coming online. We have a oil and gas operation based in Aberdeen. We have a operation based in Den Helder. And we have search and rescue in Australia, uh, South America, and our head office is in the States. But we're very much an Irish company. We're 138 staff. Um, we are going to be doing some recruitment. We'll talk about that later on, maybe, because okay. uh, it, it's interesting. But we, we are an Irish company, 138 of us here, working in Ireland, carrying out a 24-7 service. We have in the region of 40 pilots, 40 uh, technical crew, which, which is the winch crew, and we have 40 engineers. Initially in Ireland, search and rescue was provided by the Irish Air Corps. Some of the current crew with CHC would have some military background. Neville Murphy is a winch operator based in Waterford and takes up the history of search and rescue in Ireland. 
I think that was a positive change, to be honest, because I can really relate to that. And I'm sure uh, Sid and uh, Jim can as well, because we, we all have a military background uh, who progressed into the civilian world. And I think probably from, from the military side of things, from my personal experience, you know, I felt in SAR, in the military, you were never committed to it. You were, you know, one week you were, you were doing SAR, the following week you were another duty or you were, you were taken away somewhere else with your commitments to the, the military uh, side of things. Uh, and I think that was probably one of the big changes for me personally to move into the civilian world where I could dedicate, you know, 100% search and rescue as we do today, as we know it now today. So my job is solely search and rescue, no distractions. I mean, what that kind of raises as well is uh, your professional de development and it also creates a massive amount of experience, as, as Rob mentioned there earlier. I suppose after Shannon, then you had the uh, extension across the country of civilian SAR, which brought in the opening of the Dublin base back in 1998. Following that was the Waterford base, where I work now, was in uh, 2002. And uh, I suppose a big change as well in most recent times was the introduction of, of the 92, which is the aircraft we now know, which is uh, the, uh, the aircraft in, in Ireland that was introduced in 2012. I think probably on top of the technology in the aircraft, one of the biggest evolutions as well on the side of that, which a lot of people might know about, is the medical capabilities. I mean, you know, going back to the Alouette days when, when uh, the winchman went out the door and his sole mission was to get somebody from their predicament into the hospital so, they, so somebody can treat them. And that evolved into first aid, and I, I suppose it's now where we are. We actually treat people on scene medically. We treat them in the back of the aircraft, and then we bring them into the hospital environment. And uh, that is down to where we are now at the moment with state-licensed paramedics and advanced paramedics. And I think that's, uh, that's absolutely huge. And, and we have the ability to deliver 50-plus different medications with, along with a multitude of advanced life support skills. And, and that's absolutely massive to where we've come in that length of time. And I think probably in my experience, the last 20 years has been massive advances in, in that side of things. So what about the current fleet? The S-92, one of the CHC captains, is Sid Lawrence. I'm ex-Royal Navy, so I, I started my career in Sikorsky's anyway, so I flew Sea Kings. I then, tried, I then moved on when, obviously, when I came here to the civilian version with the S-61. The S-61 was an amazing machine, and I think, to be fair, historically, Sikorsky have designed very good search and rescue platforms, and they've continued that with the S-92. We've, we've, we've taken on a couple of significant upgrades by stepping up to the S-92 against the S-61. I suppose first and foremost is the power available and the cruise speeds. In the 61, we typically cruised around at about 105 knots, 110 knots. Now in the S92, we're typically cruising around at about 140 knots. And to put that into simple, simpler figures, that's 260 kilometers an hour. So that's a, that's a fair hoist. That's a fair speeder for a machine. So the S92 brings a whole host of advantages, primarily speed. She can also carry a significant lump of fuel. We burn about 1,400 pounds of fuel an hour, and we can fly for about four hours, 40 minutes. So she carries a fair chunk of fuel. If we put in our second long range tank, we can fly for about five hours, 40. What does that mean in, in, in simple terms? 
realistically on any given day we have a radius of action of about 250 nautical miles now that isn't just flying to 250 nautical miles going high turning around and coming home again that's flying to 250 nautical miles affecting a rescue uh, typically we work on about a 30 minute loiter which would allow you to affect a, a rescue of a significant number of people so you're talking typically on a typical day 250 nautical miles radius of action and 30 minutes on scene when we get there um if you add the extra fuel tank which we don't carry routinely but if you are carry the extra fuel tank you're adding another hour's worth of fuel so again the, the the distance would go up accordingly so you'd probably be talking about 310 nautical miles i think um we we've touched upon it the uh, the 61 had good systems on board one of the biggest changes we've made if i talk about it first is our ice protection so obviously anybody who flies an island will know this it's three degrees per a thousand feet etc 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 so if it's zero on the ground it's it's typically around minus three and a thousand it's not exact science but you can you can basically take it it's going to be colder above you one of the problems we had in the old 61 days is is back in, and neville touched upon this we had we had shannon and dublin so if we got a call for example in lock swilly the dublin aircraft because it couldn't go up into the cold temperatures the 61 would have to fly all the way around the coast staying below the weather and then up lock swilly the S-92 is the, is the latest generation. It's a fantastic machine. So we have anti-ice protection on the front of our engines. So our engines are protected from icing. Our windshields are protected from icing. Certain elements of our airframe are protected from icing. But most importantly, we have a rotor ice protection system, RITS. So RITS is a system that basically stops ice forming on our main rotor blades and our tail rotor blades. So here's the kicker. The S-61 could operate down to a temperature of minus five. The S92, with its RIP system fully intact and working, can operate down to minus 40. So what you've got, and the, the significance of that is us, particularly, so we say, as a Dublin pilot has to go west, or as a West Coast pilot has to come east, instead of having to stay below the weather, instead of having to stay out of icing, instead of having to go all the way around the coast, I can go in a straight line. I can climb to my MSA, so my min safe altitude, point it where I need to go, and fire it away. You then couple that with the 145 knot cruise speed, and we can be anywhere in Ireland really, really quite quickly. For me, I think the biggest significant change is the icing capability, because instead of grubbing around now, we can climb and go. What else have we got? Well, firstly, and our boys will nod when I say this, one of the significant things about the 92 is the size of its cabin. If you try and picture this, the internal space for the boys to work in is 20 foot long. It's six foot six wide and it's six foot tall. So I'm six foot three and with my flying gear on and my helmet, I have to duck in the back. To be fair and leave it in or edit it, most of the crewmen are three foot two. And as such, <laughs> they can walk around as normal and they, they have no problems. But if you talk to the boys and the boys are better qualified to come in, one of the loves of the 92 for the technical crew is they can work on their feet. They're not on their knees operating hoists and moving stretchers. They can stand in the back. And obviously that's a huge thing what else have we got on it we've got the latest generation she's from honeywell it's the latest generation weather radar now it comes with a ground mapping mode so we can use that not only for weather avoidance because i think as we all know as aviators thunder and lightning very very frightening galileo <laughs> but also we use it in a ground mapping mode so we can use it for 
for, for approaching cliff lines. We can use it for finding vessels at sea, etc., etc. We all know we've got enhanced ground proximity warning systems, which is a step forward. It's a database system. If it's in the database, the aircraft will alert you to something coming your way. We've got satellite communications. We've got high frequency communications. We've got FM communications. We've got VHF communications. So we are. We really are. You have to say it is a state of the art search and rescue platform. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the best things we've got on the machine, and they're, they're fantastic, is believe it or not, and we, we sell it, two bubble windows. And everybody goes, oh, what have you got the bubble windows for? It allows the boys to look directly below them mm-hmm. from their seats. They don't have to be hanging out the door to look. One of the greatest search tools in search and rescue is still what we, everybody in the aviation world would call the Mark One Eyeball. So whilst we have forward-looking infrared cameras, we have night sun searchlights, 99 times out of 100, it's usually the bloke's eyes that find whatever they're looking for. So the bubble windows offer that. You're painting a picture there, which I think is fairly interesting, of the idea that you don't go flying in VFR in fair weather. <laughs> if you're talking about being frozen, about it rainy and windy, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. We still fly. You know, we fly. A lot of our call-outs are in the summer. I'm a Dublin pilot. Typically, a lot of our call-outs in the summer are short-range for want of a better word, pleasure activities, mm. be that on a, on the sea. But obviously, yes, one of our nine times out of ten, if somebody's in difficulty, if it's weather related, it means we're out in all sorts of different weathers. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we are. It is a full all weather search and rescue helicopter in that we can fly in any weathers. Um, we have ridiculous wind limits that you shouldn't really get out of bed for. And we can operate very successfully in very hostile environments and I think that's the key and the history of the helicopter if you even go back at some point somebody spotted the idea that you could hover stay stationary over something uh, let somebody down and bring somebody back up and yet you do this over boats at sea that are bobbing around yeah okay it it is a slightly alien environment for some pilots the fact that you routinely would be sat with your rotor blades within 10 foot of something that's moving and trying to get you for want of a better phrase it is something obviously we're highly trained for we've even the new guys so if you came into chc today as a as a new co-pilot you're going to sit in the left-hand seat now bearing in mind we're real pilots so we sit in the right-hand seat not the left-hand seat as captains uh <laughs> fixed wing go left we go right and so our co-pilots will sit in the left-hand seat for a minimum of three years and then they'll go through a whole process of advancing to the command position and then they come into the right hand seat so the first time they sit in the left hand seat it probably is very alien when you're looking out the window and all you can see is a boat but equally by the time they become the person in the right hand seat they will have become very familiar with that environment it isn't normal i think you have to be fair and say that's another thing and i, and I will sing its praises this helicopter is particularly good at we have a full suite of so afcs i'm sure we all know you know the stabilization system on helicopters this has all a whole suite of sar modes so we have hover modes we have height holds and the such like now they won't do it all for you and they won't hold the position all for you but they are certainly an aid to the pilot in coupled flight no we do yeah okay we do some weird things jim mentioned what really i think that the key word there is the training and the systems that we have in place in chc and and, and it's the amount of training we do when you initially come into the company and how we continuously train. I mean, most of us, as we mentioned earlier, vast amount of experience, 20 years plus, mm. we still train every single day. And that's what it's all about. And uh, when you train to that level, and if I'm going out as a winch man or if I'm putting someone out as a winch operator, 
the level of trust that we have, experience and knowledge of each other, it, it's huge. And it's, mm. it's, that's a huge factor. And again, for the likes of going out the door, for the likes of Sid, we have to trust him on the sticks. You know, he's sitting there in the hover and his level of experience as well. Uh, you know, we have to rely on each other. And there's four people in that aircraft every single time. As well as the four people in the aircraft, we have, we have two engineers on the ground on every base during every shift as well. And uh, those guys, you know, keep this aircraft, you know, safe for us. They keep her maintained. So we can, again, that's another level of trust for, for those guys for us to get into the air. Historically, I presume uh, the military would have provided the recruitment for you. People would have said, "Okay, you know, you know, you're going to finish uh, in in the services and you're going to maybe join a civilian organization. Rob, would you suggest that that might not necessarily be the case anymore? Is it is it automatically that case? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point because um, we have to remember that SAR has moved from the military to commercial, let's say, in the last 30 years. Now, that's a short period of time. And when it originally moved, what you would is you would have had a lot of the military uh uh, search and rescue moving across into um, a commercial civil SAR operation and in, in terms this has developed in a short period of time now where the military kind of gene pool has dried up mm. um, so therefore what we have now is we have a recruitment process um, where we are attracting from the National Ambulance Service uh, from the Dublin Fire Brigade, and we, we are attracting in uh, from, I suppose, medically skilled people is, is good, but in terms of uh, SAR operator, we have to go through a lot of training with them. Um, so that's why, like, for example, we advertised um, for winch operator uh, last year, uh, and that would have been an advertisement that went around the world. Uh, we got uh, three applicants who met the criteria for us here for an all-weather SAR operation. That takes into account that we're in that we're in the Atlantic, um, and that's why it's it's different for us. Um, and uh, we have um, one of those that, that that is with us now is come in from our sister company uh, down in Australia. And uh, one of those people that was suitable went to one of our competitors. So that's why it, it, it has stopped. And now what we have is ab initio training where we're taking people in from the National Ambulance Service, Dublin Fire Brigade, and they're going through an extensive recruitment process before they even get in the door. There are many, many elements. Mm. And probably the guys will take you through that nerve or gym there in what they have to go through. It's a bit like one of these uh, programs that you see on television. And we do... Um, which it's paused because of COVID now at the moment, and um, because we don't have all of the um, the, the different uh, swimming pools and stuff like that available to us to go through the recruitment process with these people. Um, but uh, we are going to fill in uh, each different module, mm. and uh, we're going to share them. Um, and uh, I think it will be very educational for the public when they see what the actual people coming through in the recruitment process go through. So the civilians might be uh, surprised to find out, of course, that the, the, uh, the dunker uh, as a part of the training. Can, can you uh, let us in on that and what it's actually involved? Yeah, well, we actually do it down at the uh, National Maritime College of Ireland. So the dunker, hey, yeah, great fun. Hewitt, helicopter underwater escape training. So in a nutshell, obviously, we operate.
operate in hostile environments and a lot of them are in conditions we describe as feet wet and what that means is we're offshore so we've headed offshore we could be a long way from home and a long way from help and obviously if we do have a mechanical failure that sees us ending up on the water these things are top heavy <laughs> helicopters are top heavy by the very nature that the gearboxes the engines and everything else are slapped on top of them which is why you typically find the fuel in the floor to try and counteract that but obviously there's every likelihood that if the aircraft ends up on the water it's going to invert so obviously we every three years we have the joy of going down to the national maritime college of ireland and they have a, a machine there we would call the dunker they would call it the helicopter underwater escape trainer <laughs> You Glad got the name right anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you literally, you would be strapped in. So we typically work as a crew of four. So four of us would get in it. They move you around a little in the seats and you will do what we call six dunks, maybe more. But typically you will, you will do an initial dunk, which uh, is a straightforward vertical descent sat upright no window windows in the capsule and the idea is is you can you can disengage your seat belts find your exit and leave now obviously all the training is such that you you're you have hand positions you'll have your feet in the right position you'll have your points of contact etc etc but ultimately what happens is you end up upside down in the dark in this machine having to go out a window that isn't the one next to you and it's all part of the development of the training to allow you to get out. You, you've mentioned personal protective equipment, and that, that leads very nicely to the idea of what it has been like for you as a, as a group over the last 12 months operating in COVID and the COVID situation. Yeah. What have been the, what's been the direct implication on day-to-day -day operations for you? From our own point of view, our chief groom and standards medical come up with a fairly comprehensive system. I've come up with a very extensive system of... Um, following the protocols in the HSE as best we can to operate in the helicopter environment. Um, so we're using the full standard PPE that they would use in the hospitals. But we quickly developed different systems where um, we silo the bases for different periods of time during when there's high risk periods. And we brought in different systems then with a, a different bases as well where the different groups would try and stay separate. So in order that the pilots, the crew, and the engineers would stay separate on shift and only come together when they absolutely have to. And thankfully, uh, through the last year, we have done really, really well at managing to keep the whole operation running successfully. I, I think one of the biggest things, Michael, on the COVID thing is we come back to what we call the crew concept and we come back to trust. So, for example, I'm in the building today with five other people. The very fact that we haven't lost very many man hours, and I'm sure Rob will give you the figures, to COVID signifies that trust. So I'm happy to come in here with these guys. I'm happy to hang out with them. We try and keep the distance, as Jim said. But obviously, once we're in the cockpit, there's no social distancing. We're in a helicopter. Um, I think the key thing is, is because I know that everybody I'm working with is being as careful as I am, that trust has helped us greatly. If I give you my close contact list, other than my wife and my daughter, it is all work colleagues. Mm. I haven't seen anybody else. And we, none of us have really since March of last year. And I think we come back for us, the biggest successful factor for a SAR crew is the crew concept, is the trust. And it's shown through COVID. It was a real challenge for us in the beginning and, and, and it's a challenge for everybody and we don't have a monopoly on the problem. I think the guys at the bases, what we did is we decided to communicate regularly with people. We asked people for ideas to how they thought 
we could keep COVID out of the bases. So a lot of the ideas that we came up with were from the crew themselves, emailing me different suggestions because we communicated regularly with them. But we have to keep in mind that although the public stayed indoors and what we were talking about earlier on in relation to the training, the guys still have to go out and train. It's not a matter of ticking off the boxes of this training is required. They have to stay proficient in what they do. To stay proficient in what they do, they need to go out flying regularly. So when people see them out flying, it's not necessarily to go on a rescue. Mm. I think the other thing is what I have found coming here is the crew concept of what Sid is talking about there. They're very much a crew of six. They stick together. And when we were asking them to separate, because when you go on the bases, they're sitting around having cups of tea together, they're chatting together, they're watching, you know, sitting in watching the television together, if there's sport on, if they're not on a call. And we actually are asking them to separate. So there's huge anxiety there. So for men's mental health, what we what we had to do is to consider that as well. And in considering that, you know, telling people it's okay not to be okay. Mm. And I think what we regularly did is we regularly kept up the comms. We regularly kept in touch with each other. We asked them to reach out to each other and very much as Sid was saying, a crew concept to look after each other. So that, that, was, that was a real challenge. I think in the beginning as well was to get the testing done because if you can remember when COVID broke out, if somebody had symptoms, trying to get a test, trying to get the results of the test it took so, so long mm-hmm. so if we had somebody who had symptoms did we how could we get them tested because we're such a small group of staff that, as i was saying at the beginning 138 like taking two or three out can have a real impact so the hse were brilliant in the beginning the HSC were great to help us. We had, you know, they facilitated testing. They would help, you know, in trying to get the results back. We, in, in the whole 12 months, we had to take two bases offline for, for 24 hours. It had an impact, but no more than an impact for everybody else. And I, I find that the, the, the staff here really knuckled down and came up with all of the great ideas and we kept everybody safe. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, I want to explore another idea with you, which is that uh, people have been, you know, self-isolating. They've been cocooning. They've been staying hopefully within their five kilometers. If that's lifted uh, towards the end of the summer... Uh, you could end up being extremely busy on the water with people losing the run of themselves. Yeah, I, t- yeah, I think we'll give that to Jim because that happened next year. Jim or Nev there will tell you. We had some hairy ones. So we had a, quite some quite challenging rescues uh, during the summer past, Michael, because what we found happened was, if I remember correctly, we had a two-kilometer limit initially, didn't we? We did, right? yeah. And that's then changed to five kilometers. Now, when that point happened between the two and the five, People went absolutely nuts. And what they done was they actually traveled from, so people started going to water resources like rivers and lakes and places where you wouldn't normally go to swim. That was inside their 5K. And these were people that would normally say go to the beach where you'd be in a more controlled environment. So we suddenly found ourselves certainly in Shannon where we were rescuing people from places where you just wouldn't expect them to be. I think, to be fair, you kind of have to balance that. The majority of our call-outs, Michael, are to genuine people who are just unfortunate. And and for me, I'm going to phrase that slightly differently to Jim. What would normally happen is all of us here and most of the people in Ireland would go, do you know what, let's go for two weeks abroad, let's go for four weeks, whatever it may be. So those unfortunate things don't all happen around the coast of Ireland because they could be in Spain, they could be in the States or whatever. So for me, I think the biggest significant change is the staycation. Mm. So what you have is you have the people, quite rightly, I have no problems with this, they want to enjoy the beautiful coastlines of Ireland, the beautiful hills, the beautiful rivers. But what we are seeing is, whereas some of those unfortunate incidents would normally happen on, for want of a better phrase, someone else's patch, they're happening on our patch. And I think it's very important to say that the majority of people we are called to help are just unfortunate. They are nice, honest people who happen to be out enjoying a day and something unfortunate happens. People have to respect the water. It's not like the Mediterranean. People just need to be very careful around the water. We had uh, Sid, uh, who did a rescue out in Sandy Mount, where... Um, I saw this. this there was a video of this, yeah. Uh, you know, they, they just went out for a walk, but the tide changed so quickly yeah. and cut them off. That was also interesting, Sid, in that, uh, you know, you, you actually landed in that particular case on a sandbank, I think, was it? Rather than, than, than the uh, actually, actually, I mean, it was one of those interesting jobs. One of the things, and the, the boys around the screen here are going to nod and agree, is one of the things we have to do is we are constantly, and it's very dynamic, changing plans, risk assessments, re-changing plans. So we rolled up that day. So we were tasked to the three, cut off by the tide, Sandy Mount. And literally, as we were briefing, so we'll fly a circuit, for want of a better phrase, and we brief, obviously. We don't just plunge straight in. And you could see the island disappearing. 
Now, the boys will nod at this. Winching is a fantastic tool, but there's a couple of things about winching. Firstly, it's the most exposed you'll ever be in the helicopter in terms of something going wrong. And equally, there is a time scale involved where the boys have to get ready. They have to prepare themselves, their equipment, et cetera, et cetera. That day, that, that, that little bit of beach was disappearing. The quickest thing to do is to put the wheels on, throw, throw people in the door, three people in the door, take off and disappear. And if you actually watch the video, I deliberately let it run because as we came round in the circuit after we took off, the island's gone. So the quickest thing to do and the safest thing to do that day was to land. Commonly on a rescue, the safest thing to do is land. If we have to winch, we will. But if we don't have to, we won't. You won't, exactly. <laughs> you also get involved in other activities as well. And we've talked a lot about rescue, but uh, there's certain missions, including medical transfers, etc. So, so obviously in Ireland, as with anywhere, if people get ill and they need some sort of help and intervention, it may involve going abroad and and what we're talking about here is the UK for a transplant. We're actually number four in the list, but what would happen on any given occasion is obviously if a transplant comes up and Neville sure touch on this in a moment, there's obviously a finite period of time while the organ involved is viable. We're number four on the list. If the first three on the list are unavailable for whatever reason, they will then come to us. Our aircraft are actually, believe it or not, quite common sight in the UK because we do do a few of these in, a, in the course of a year. To put, just to, to give you a quick backbone, if you were to say to me now, we need you to nip to London, and I, I pulled up the figures for today's weather. So today's wind's reasonably benign. It's only 10 knots. It's from the south, which is nice. It's a neutral wind when you're going east-west. It's approximately two hours each way for us at the moment to get to London Heathrow. London Heathrow is one of our options, but we would typically prefer to use Norfolk because Heathrow is very busy. It's not that we don't like it, but they really don't like it because we're slow compared with the fixed wing. But typically you're talking two hours transfer time from here. So from when the casualty arrives here to the casualty arriving in London Heathrow, you're talking two hours. We do quite a lot of these. They are a vital role for the state and something we're only too happy to take on and proud to do. When you load a wee one in the back of the aircraft with with a worried parent and you know that you're bringing them somewhere that's fundamentally going to change an entire family's life, yeah, that's a big moment. So it's something we're happy to do. I suppose we're we're used to, Sarah, we're used to going out in fast environments, you know, working the mountains, working the sea, dealing with trauma and I think the difference with the, uh, with the transfers and transplants is you know like Sid uh, mentioned earlier it's, it's getting the, the, the child and, and the parent on board and, and heading across mm. to the UK from our perspective in the back it's, it's a little bit different it's a little bit you're, you're chatting to them in the back rather than trying to medically treat them mm. you know you, you have a parent and you're, you're trying to break the ice and have a bit of fun have a bit of crack uh, it, it's, it's a little bit different to Sarah I think it's, it turns out to be a little bit uh, personal and, and certainly to, to see them heading off in the ambulance over in the UK knowing that you've just helped them and changed their life you know come back with a life changing operation Do people come back to you? Do you hear from people afterwards? Sometimes we do. We, we'd, we'd often get a card in the post or, or, or maybe a nice written letter with a card. Certainly, I, I've got a few in the past from, from those transfers as well. And it is lovely to get. I mean, we don't do this to get thanks from anybody. But you know what? To get some nice written letters there, it's, it's absolutely lovely. It's heartwarming to get back, especially to hear, you know, how they get on. The, the, the operation's successful. Their life goes on. Uh, there was one particular uh, rescue in, in, in Waterford many years ago. 
and uh, it was a baby child during, uh, I think it was 2010 in the snow. And the, the parents, uh, we took the child from Wexford up to Dublin for a, a life-changing uh, operation uh, in the middle of the night. And, and they keep coming back to the base. And, uh, you know, we, we get a letter on his 10th birthday. You know, so we're getting a literally uh, an update on this child's life, and it's absolutely fantastic. But it, it not only goes from uh, bringing people to places as well. I had a very unusual one uh, a few years back, and it was um, it was a heart transplant from from Cork to Dublin. So uh, the interesting thing about it was we we they, they had somebody in the hospital in Cork with uh, a viable heart, and they had somebody in Dublin who needed it. And the interesting part of this one was uh, we actually it was all down to timing, and, and it was all time critical. So once we lifted from Waterford Airport, routing to Cork, they then commenced the harvesting in the hospital of the heart. By the time we got to Cork, we stayed rotors running just so there'd be no delay. Uh, the heart was then brought to the um, brought to Cork Airport. As soon as we lifted, the message was sent to Dublin, and they started in the operating theatre in Dublin. So again, it was it was all communications through the Irish Coast Guard into the HSC in the hospital itself. And it was such a, a team effort. And I suppose one of the maddest things about that, we're used to, from a medical point of view, we're used to dealing with people and, and, and having on board and trying to treat them and look after them in the aircraft. When the doctor arrived on board the aircraft uh, this day, he had a, a cooler box. It was like you'd bring to a picnic with a couple of beers in it. It's the only way I could describe it. And there was a laminated piece of... Uh, uh, sheet on top with heart written it. And that was sat in the aircraft and we bought to Dublin that day. Mm. And it was absolute it was surreal just, you know, looking at this uh, box, knowing there was a heart inside it, knowing that it's going to a good place. And again, the unfortunate part of that is somebody had to give it up in the first place. And I suppose the massive reward is it, it, it went into somebody and, and it worked and it was a simple operation. What we often find is people write, write to the Irish Coast Guard to, to, to thank them and they get passed on to us. And what we have to remember is we're only one element of what the Irish Coast Guard does. We're only the helicopter element. There's plenty of other uh, different parts of the Irish Coast Guard as well. So it's a huge service to provide to the state. As we come to the end of our chat, uh, two things I really want to, I, I suppose, tie up. One is you mentioned recruitment earlier on, uh, and this is very possible that there might be, as you say, somebody who's suitably qualified. Uh, what would be sort of the base level that you're talking about uh, from, say, paramedic level? And then, you know, from the flying side of things, what, what, are, what are the two options there? Uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll take that one to start with. If you want, guys, uh, from from uh, uh, tech crew, uh, winch crew in the back, uh, I suppose, uh, as Rob mentioned earlier, the, the from the recruitment side for tech crew, we used to always rely on, on the military side of things. You know, they'd come in and we, we'd train them, we'd convert them to our aircraft and we, we'd uh, convert them to how CHC operates uh, as a company and, and off they go. We had to develop that, we had to change and uh, I think that change came in around 2007. I think we took in our first uh, uh, ab initio. So we actually created an ab, an ab initio training programme and that has been developed over the, over the years to our current one now. Uh, which involves a huge uh, training uh, a vetting process. And just uh, to briefly go through, it's a six-stage uh, vetting process, really, and it involves uh, fitness and water confidence. But so the stage one is um, 
conducted inside in, uh, Dublin City University, and that involves strength, fitness, and, and a swim test in the pool. So again, you have to have a certain level of fitness and uh, capable in the water. Um, the second stage of that would be a water confidence test, and that's conducted down in the National Maritime College of Ireland down in Ringeskiddy. And that's inside in the environmental pool that they have down there. They can create waves, wind, uh, darkness. It's, uh, Sid spoke about earlier in the dunker. That's where we carry out our dunker. So we put these people through their paces uh, and, and give them uh, exposure to the, uh, the environment we work in in a controlled environment. And, and, and that will certainly uh, separate the, the men from the boys or the, the girls from the, the women from the girls, uh, whichever case may be. And the third phase would be a medical scenario simulator in a University of Limerick. Uh, so these are trained paramedics we normally get in, or advanced paramedics. But again, we have to see how they work in the helicopter environment. It's, it's noisy, we wear a lot of gear, and, and you walk on your own an awful lot. So we have a simulator in UL, and uh, we put them again through their medical paces in there to see how they react in, in, in our environment. Uh, we also have the fourth phase, which is a flight test in one of our CHC bases. So again, get them into the aircraft, get them for a feel around it, what it's like to interact with the crew, communicate with helmets and, and noise and uh, downdraft and wind. And uh, again, just get them through that. The fifth phase then would be the interview phase, to be a standard interview with, uh, with, with management. And uh, the sixth one, as we spoke about earlier, was uh, the psychometric and psychological evaluation. And uh, once you pass all of those six stages, you'll, you'll be brought to your training base then at that stage. Mm. And I don't think they did the sixth stage for Sid when he came in. They must have had that available then. Or he lost it very well anyway. <laughs> Too late, I'm a legacy now. <laughs> so once you pass all those phases, you're, you're brought into your training base and uh, our training for a winch man um, is, is roughly between three and six months, depending mm. on, on operations on the base as well. When I say winch man, we do have a winch woman, which we call a winch man. Sarah Courtney is, is down with us in, in Waterford. You know, she was a part of it as well, so it's open to, to everybody. After they complete the training, you are then put on with a, with a trainer for approximately three months, just as a, a protection and consolidation of training period. And then you're out to the, to the wild as, as, as a winch man and the... Now, I was just thinking, most pilots will happily recount their first solo flight. Um, I'm wondering for people who operate uh, on the winch, it, it, what, what is that like? The, the first operation, is it, the, is it again a memorable event? It, it certainly is. I think it, it probably stems from the first time you were ever on the wire during training. Uh, that's an experience in itself. What I think to, to complete all your training, to get out and wearing a real job, it's... It, uh, and and successfully completed, I think it's it's a huge experience. I mean, if if you think of what we do, we're dangling on a, a very thin piece of wire, relying on your winch operator to communicate what you need to the likes of Sid to communicate to him what we all need to fly the aircraft in mm -hmm. the hover in in a very very harsh environment. And it's that communication skills through everybody and and the trust with everybody in there. 
I think, I think to be honest, every single time we're on the wire is a memorable uh, experience. I think the pilot role is slightly different. Coming in into search and rescue, don't get me wrong, we're not trying to paint a picture of elitism or anything like that, but obviously we are looking for a, a reasonably high standard of ability. Funnily enough, while we were talking, I just pulled up the requirements because it's not something I would normally have on the tip of my tongue. So to become a first officer with CHC, you obviously need a valid ATPLH, which is an air transport pilot license, or at the very minimum, a commercial pilot's license. Uh, yeah. And you need the exams done. If you've got a CPL, you need everything done that you can progress to an ATPLH. That's just the generic requirements. From a search and rescue point of view, if you are type rated and fully qualified, regardless of what happens, unless you're coming from a very predominant SAR background, you're going to arrive into Ireland and you're going to become a first officer, senior first officer. You've got to complete what they call an OCC course, the operational conversion course. So the operational conversion course basically take, even if you're within CHC, this, this happens and that will turn you, that will basically sort of mold you into how the company want you to perform in a SAR environment. But you'll have to do a type rating before you arrive, the OCC, and then typically, unless you have a predominantly SAR background, you're going to spend at least three years, for want of a better way, a word as an apprenticeship in the in the left hand seat before before progressing into command. But we are looking, you, you know, with the best will in the world. If you've just passed your CPL, you've got a few hundred hours out your belt. You're probably not going to be looked at by CHC Island, and that's not trying to be derogatory. But I'd suggest if you take some of the the less experienced people and slap them where we tend to put helicopters, it may it may overwhelm them to a certain degree yeah because we're, what we're doing now we're in the middle of recruitment for the tech crew and then we're going to be advertising very soon for a pilot to join us so we're, we're a small group you know so uh, we have uh, 38 pilots at the moment we're going to be advertising for another that will go out in the next couple of weeks I think if I wanted to explain something the one thing that perhaps stands a SAR crew and for that I involve all six of us slightly different from uh, and I'm going to use the phrase general aviation and perhaps more sort of standardized commercial aviation is our life revolves around very quick decisions a lot of constantly changing decisions in potentially demanding environments and that phrase time critical so like I'm sat now today talking to you I'm on shift if the phone rings behind me I'm going to leave this room and within 15 minutes we would aim to have the helicopter airborne going to anything so I don't know what it's going to be on any given basis so the, the reason that kind of sprung into my head is a lot of one of the questions we're asked a lot is you're 15 minutes during the day you're 45 minutes at night where does that come into it the simple phrase is all it, you could kind of take it as sleep inertia plays a role but the easiest way i can explain it to you is sat here talking to me right now everybody looking at this screen knows what's happening outside they know what's happening around them because they're awake so i can tell you now the weather's fine i really don't need to do much weather planning we'll be able to take pretty much anything that comes in but if you wake me up at three o'clock in the morning i have no idea what's going on around me i have no idea what's happened to the weather i have no idea what's happening so that 45 minutes allows a crew to to come from fully asleep to alert functioning and planning and moving on it's very seldom we take 45 minutes to get airborne but it's allow us it's to allow us to do that and the way i explain this when i'm visiting the schools is if i stand you in the middle of a gymnasium in the middle of the day and spin you round and round and say find the exit you might toddle off a bit because you're dizzy but you will find the exit if i do that in the pitch black it's going to be a while before you find the exit yeah, the, the, there's another thing to add there to compare to, compare to the airline world, Michael. 
is that when the crew are on standby, and if we phone crew in the middle of the night in, in an airline and you say to the pilot, the first question he's going to ask you is, where am I going? And uh, you will say you're going to do the double Londons, double Paris, and you have an hour, sometimes an hour and a half to get to the base, then you have an hour to prep for your flight. When you think about an all-weather SAR crew, they have 45 minutes at night to be airborne. So that's why it's uniquely different compared to the standby world. I suppose the only thing we've left is is some stats. And from last year, uh, we, we did 700 missions, which is down slightly. And that was because of COVID, because in March and April, we effectively, we had no missions. And out of those missions, we rescued 150 people and we assisted 299, not 300, but 299. So it is a fantastic service that the Irish Coast Guard provide. We're happy to be part of that, but they provide other, uh, the Coast Guard, as I was saying earlier on, provide many other rescue services. We're just one element. Neville Murphy, Jim O'Neill, Sid Lawrence, and Rob Tatton, thank you for joining us on Squawk 7000. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Long Final from Squawk7000.ie. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and do tell your friends. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.